If you're new with us, we are starting a brand new series today, 2 Corinthians, and so we invite you in on that study. Uh, if you're watching us online, great to have you as well. We're going to spend a good bit of time in this uh, wonderful book over the next uh, several months, Lord willing. Uh, let's pray together as we uh, jump in um, and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we, oh, we relish the fact that you are the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. Be merciful to us now, we pray. Speak your comfort in our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish pastor in the 17th century, said that when he was cast into the cellars of affliction, that he remembered that the king always keeps the best wine there. Similarly, Charles Spurgeon said that those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Both of them are trying to convey the idea that Paul is getting across here, and that is that there is blessing to be found in our nearness to Christ as we experience affliction. We experience his love. We experience his comfort. If you're perhaps exploring the Christian life, you should know that two things come into your life when you become a Christian. Affliction and comfort. And that's what this passage is all about. Now, everybody will deal with some level of affliction because we live in a fallen world, but those who are Christians are going to have added afflictions because we know if we follow Jesus, it will bring some measure of opposition, some measure of affliction. Paul says that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. But the good news for us this morning is that affliction, in this affliction, we can experience divine comfort. We find a very unusual degree of strength, of nearness, and even assurance that the Lord is with us. We find that the best wine is in the cellar. We find rare pearls in the sea of affliction. Now, in 2 Corinthians, you need to know that this is probably Paul's most vulnerable letter. At one point, he says that he has opened his heart wide to the Corinthians. This is a very emotional letter, as Paul does a number of things, and, uh, including listing uh, a collection of afflictions that he has endured on behalf of Christ. We'll get to those in due time. But why is it that Paul will address all of his afflictions in this letter. Let me explain a bit of the situation here. <clears throat> if Paul uh, had to give a, a relationship status on Facebook with the Corinthians, he would probably select, it's complicated. That was Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. As one writer put it, if there was one church that caused Paul to pull out his hair and made him age before his time, it was probably the church of God in Corinth. Now we have two letters, First and Second Corinthians, but from the letters, we discern that he wrote at least four letters. 1 Corinthians is actually the second, and 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth. Corinth was the capital of Achaia, a Greco-Roman city, very prosperous, cosmopolitan, pluralistic, and immoral. It was known for public boasting and self-promotion. It was a manufacturing city. Many things were made in Corinth, including uh, tents and pottery. It sat at the foot of this massive mountain. I got to go there back in 2004 called the Acro-Corinth, the upper city of Corinth, which, which set, uh, the, 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 set on top of this massive hill. Uh, and on top of this massive hill was the temple of Aphrodite. 
uh, a, a goddess of fertility that had many uh, cult prostitutes involved with it. In Paul's day, you're looking at a city of about 80,000 people with about 20,000 outlying villages. And part of the reason for the prominence of this city was its strategic location on this uh, Isthmus now canal between uh, the two halves of Greece. Many people flooded into Corinth. They had the Isthmian Games, which were similar to the Olympic Games. And there were many people who paid visits to this particular city. It was known for great uh, speakers who would often come and uh, entertain crowds and so on. Paul picks up on all of that background as you read these two letters. Now, in A.D. 51, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He stayed there for 18 months. First, had a lot of opposition. Jesus met him, uh, encouraged him. He stayed there. Uh, People became Christians. uh, And there, Paul established this church. Uh, When he writes 2 Corinthians, he had already been from Corinth into Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he almost uh, was thrown into this uh, riotous crowd and uh, barely was able to escape As one writer says, by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he looks like death. Paul then paid a a painful visit, as we're going to read later in our study to the Corinthians. After this initial planting visit where he planted the church, he goes to Ephesus. Uh, Some other people went into Corinth, Apollos and Peter. And uh, while their visit was good, it also kind of created, it seems, a, a cult of personality between who's the best preacher And then Paul also learned about uh, serious moral problems uh, in the church. And so he writes 1 Corinthians in order to address many of these problems. And he writes that about uh, two years later. The letter that Paul wrote was not received super well. Uh, In fact, it got a mixed reaction. And as Timothy reported back to Paul on how the church responded to 1 Corinthians, he had to pay what he calls a painful visit to the church in Corinth, an emergency visit. The visit did not go well. Uh, The visit was actually very dejecting to Paul. Some people attacked Paul. Uh, It seems that no one stood up to defend Paul. And as a result of this, he wrote a third letter, which we don't have in the Bible, that he refers to here in this book as the painful letter, calling the church to repent and take action against one particular offender. Titus delivered this letter. He had the great privilege of delivering the painful letter to the church. And what he observed as he gave this letter was the church actually repented, at least the majority seems to. And Titus stayed there to energize them for a collection that they were going to take up for the church in Jerusalem. This painful letter brought Paul a good deal of encouragement. And during this time, there were a group of guys that we'll read about later in chapters 10 to 13 that Paul refers to as the super apostles that came in and agitated the church, started spreading rumors about the apostle Paul, and as a result, Paul's reputation has been tarnished. A good chunk of this letter is about Paul trying to defend his integrity. And that's where we have 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this letter in AD 55, about four years after planting the church. He's had a series of correspondences, and this relationship status is complicated. (laughs) There are hurt feelings. There's been some measure of reconciliation, but the situation is still not all that it should be. And so Paul writes this letter trying to defend not only his integrity, but in defending himself, he's actually defending the gospel as many of these super apostles were spreading a false gospel. They were saying about Paul that he was fickle, that you could not 
trust his word, as we'll see later in this chapter. They said that Paul's appearance was too weak. That when he wrote letters, he looked really bold, but when he showed up, he wasn't much to look at. This was a city that really boasted in appearances, and Paul will rebuke this church over and over again about only looking at outer appearances. These super apostles had what they called letters of recommendation, and they said Paul doesn't have a letter of recommendation. And they said that Paul suffered too much to be an apostle, that if he was really an apostle, he would prosper. Very similar to what we hear of today in the prosperity gospel. They said that Paul was not a good speaker. And they said, believe it or not, that Paul was not successful. Paul is under attack in Corinth, and he writes this letter, a church that he loves. And he celebrates, to a degree, some of the reconciliation that they've experienced. But the riff is still not mended when he writes this letter. At the end of the letter, he says, your restoration is what we pray for. He gives further instructions about a collection, that's chapters 8 and 9, and then he addresses these super apostles. So if you want to outline the book, it's really in three parts. The first seven chapters are about Paul defending his ministry, and in defending it, he goes on to defend the gospel, and he, he weaves these two together. Chapters 8 and 9, he exhorts the church to generosity, to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And in chapters 10 to 13, he exposes the deception and the falsity of these super apostles. And in all of this, we see Paul opening up his heart wide to the church. He's very vulnerable in this letter. The letter's explosive at times. It's emotional at times. Uh, the, the unfiltered pathos of this book may leave one to say, am I really reading the Bible here? He writes it with tears. He is, as he calls himself, the father to the Corinthians. He led these people to faith in Jesus. He planted the church and in this letter, he affirms his love for them. He corrects and rebukes them. He defends his ministry against criticism. He magnifies the gospel over false gospels. And he shows one of the dominant themes in this letter is how God's power is manifested through human weakness. That instead of belittling Paul for his weakness, he says it is because his weakness that God gets glory in his life. Because only God could receive glory. It was only him who could do these sorts of things. As one writer put it, if the super apostles asked for Paul's credentials, he would have showed, showed them his scars. That was his credentials. And so we are called in this letter to follow after Paul as he follows after Christ. We too are weak. We are jars of clay, as Paul says. But it is through our weakness, through our frailty, that God's power is made perfect, that his glory shines through, that the gospel is magnified. And so if we're weak, we're a great candidate to be a disciple maker in this world. Now, the greeting in verses 1 and 2 is, is pretty straightforward. Nothing there that, that really uh, stands out from uh, the other greetings. You see Paul calling himself an apostle, one who had... Uh, uh, encountered the risen Christ who had been sent by Christ, Acts chapter 9, to suffer on behalf of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. And he is an apostle by the will of God. And that, that phrase is important because much of this letter is about the super apostles saying that Paul was actually not an apostle, and he is saying that uh, I am an apostle by the will of God, not by my own uh, choosing. And Timothy, our brother, Paul wouldn't live a whole lot longer after this letter. He would pass the baton on to Timothy and others. And he writes, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth and all the saints in the whole of Achaia. 
So Corinth would be like Raleigh, Achaia like North Carolina. <clears throat> this is a letter that would be uh, dispersed uh, in the region. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul fuses together the Jew and uh, uh, Greek greeting, uh, peace, shalom, and grace, charis, uh, to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 3 to 7, we have this opening thanksgiving. And Paul blesses God. He, he praises God. Now, most of Paul's letters, with the exception of Galatians, in which he doesn't thank them for anything, <laughs> Paul thanks the church. But here, he thanks God. Uh, the only, only letter that Paul begins this way is uh, the book of Ephesians, which also begins with this beautiful doxology. And so Paul here is going to praise God for his comfort and his mercies. He's going to bring up the issue of afflictions, which is going to be a big issue in the book. How could Paul suffer so much and actually be an apostle? And so from the get-go, Paul introduces a dominant theme. And he also introduces us to the wonderful idea of God's comfort. This is probably the greatest text in the Bible on God's comfort. It occurs at least 10 times here in this passage. And the word group uh, from where it originates occurs 29 out of 59 times uh, in the New Testament. Is all right here in 2 Corinthians. This is a book about God's comfort. This is a book that reminds us that in our afflictions, God is with us. God is present to bless and to strengthen. And this idea, again, was so important because a city that prized wealth and power and showmanship and appearances, they look at the Apostle Paul and they say, how can one who has suffered this much actually be used by God and be blessed by God? And Paul says, it is my suffering and my afflictions that actually are signs of my apostolic authority. And so he goes into this beautiful doxology praising God for his comfort in the midst of affliction. I'd like for us to work our way through it with, with four truths that we see related to affliction and comfort. And uh, for your convenience, the, each of them begins with the letter P. We see God's praise, first of all, and then we see the purpose of affliction. We see our participation with Christ, and then we see the call to perseverance in the midst of it. So first of all, praise. Paul encourages us here, teaches us here to praise God for his comfort and his mercies. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We see something here of the nature of God. He is the Father, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the relationship between the Father and the Son. And here I think there's something of the humanity of Jesus being emphasized here. And Paul perhaps introduces this because it reminds us of the one we follow who himself went through affliction, but was comforted by the Father. And we know that before we experience glory, we too must travel this road of suffering. In our affliction, church, we are not abandoned. We belong to God. And this God is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The Father of mercies. We may show God's mercy and compassion, but it pales in comparison to God's mercy and his compassion. And he's always merciful and compassionate. He is merciful in giving life to the dead. That's what he's done for us. That we were objects of his wrath, Ephesians tells us, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. 
He was merciful in putting forward his son in our place instead of us on behalf of us. And he's the God of all comfort. Notice that word all. All comfort we ever experience is originating from our God. Now, as this book will show us, sometimes this comfort is ministered to us through a human being. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 7 that he had fears, uh, uh, fights without and fears within, but God comforted him through the coming of Titus. The Titus touch gave Paul a degree of comfort. Now this comfort came from God, but it was mediated through a person. And I think that's instructive for us because sometimes it's your visits, it's your prayers, you know, it's, it's sermons, it's, it's teachings, it's books. God will minister comfort to us in a variety of ways, but we praise him as the one who gives the comfort. He's the God of all comfort. Elsewhere we read in the Bible that he is the God of all grace, who is with us in our trials. Paul says he's also the God of endurance and encouragement, and here he's the God of all comfort. Church, in every loss, in every pain, in every sorrow, in every disappointment, our God is present to bless and strengthen and help and heal his people. Because he's the God of all comfort. And he comforts us in our affliction. <laughs> That's the only way you experience the comfort is when you're in this affliction. And this, this word here it, it refers to both external hardships that one may be experiencing and also internal pressure burdens, as Paul will say later as he's listing all of his afflictions. And he says, beyond all this, I have the anxiety of all the churches. Paul probably has both in mind here. He catalogs a bunch of them in this letter. He goes from one affliction to another. Now, what, what is meant here by comfort? I think that's very important to, to ask, because many things would bring us comfort today, right? Like heat or uh, <laughs> a massage, uh, a fireplace. A hot tub sounds great. What kind of comfort does Paul have in mind? Well, we should begin by saying this is a real experience. It's, it's felt in suffering. David Garland, I think, writes it well when he says, For us, the word comfort may connote emotional relief and a sense of well-being, physical ease, satisfaction, and freedom from pain and anxiety. Many in our culture worship at the cult of comfort in a self-centered search for ease, but it lasts only for a moment and never fully satisfies. The comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with sleep, the sleepy feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pains, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one's heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation, God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. I like that. This comfort that God gives strengthens weak knees and sagging spirits so that we can face the afflictions of this life. And friends, there, there is no one else or anything else that can give you this kind of strength for endurance but the God of all comfort. Sometimes God may deliver you out of affliction, but sometimes he leaves you in affliction, and it's in the affliction that we experience his comfort. This comfort is sufficient for all of our troubles. This is one of the messianic blessings that Isaiah prophesied about. You recall Isaiah chapter 40, which begins, Comfort, comfort my people. 
And one of the signs of Messiah being here is that he would bring comfort. You remember uh, how the old saint uh, uh, Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, held Jesus. And there he held the comfort that had been promised in the Old Testament. In Jesus Christ, and only in Jesus Christ, do we have divine comfort. And the comfort we experience now is an already not yet comfort. Greater comfort will come when the Messiah returns. He's the God of all comfort and Father of all mercies. Well, that was a good sermon. Oh, I got some more points, sorry. Purpose. Purpose here. Now, why is it that we go through affliction? We don't have time to deal with all of that. Many books have been written on that. Sometimes we don't have the answers to all of our afflictions. Uh, Job never got answers, did he? But here, we do see one purpose of your affliction. God comforts believers so that they can comfort others. Notice this purpose clause here. He's the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that... What's the purpose of this comfort? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the reasons we go through affliction is to equip us to care for others who are going through a similar affliction. So the first point, suffering enables us to have a deeper fellowship with God. Second point, suffering enables us to have deeper fellowship with other believers. Because it's in our affliction that we learn to sympathize. We learn the experience, uh, a similar experience to their experience. And we're able to minister God's comfort. In other words, when God comforts you in affliction, God's comfort never terminates with you. It's for a purpose. We are a channel, a conduit. We become agents of hope and healing ourselves. Think about that. What is your affliction today? Maybe you have a difficult child. Maybe you are the difficult child. <laughs> now you're paying attention. Good. You're in the right place. Now, if you have a difficult child and you, say, you know someone else who has a difficult child, then you, you say, I know your pain, right? I know how you're feeling. And you can be a comforter to those who are in that kind of trial. Or perhaps even worse, you, you've had an abusive parent. Well, that gives you a, a great deal of, of ability to, to sympathize and minister to those who are dealing with that kind of trauma. Or cancer. People who went through cancer, man, they know the vocabulary of cancer. Uh, they, they know the, something of the trials, and they are sympathetic. If you've gone through the pain of infertility, you're able to weep with those who weep. If you've lost a child, then you are particularly sympathetic, aren't you, when you hear of such stories? Or if you're in ministry and you've encountered opposition, which never happens, right? Then, then you want to hug a pastor when you see him. We could go on and on. The point is, God comforts us not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. That's why he comforts us. He strengthens us so that we can strengthen others. To put it another way, your greatest hardship will often lead to your greatest ministry. Your greatest pain will often lead to your greatest service to others. It will equip you and 
enable you to sympathize and minister to those who are suffering in a similar way. So that's the purpose. We praise God for his comfort, and we recognize one of the purposes of his comfort is not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Now, thirdly here, we see participation. Paul speaks here of the doctrine of our union with Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, so far he's praised the God of all comfort, and now he introduces something of the person and work of Christ as he brings up this idea that we participate in the cross-shaped life of Jesus Christ. We who are united to him experience sufferings. Paul says it like that, doesn't he, in Philippians chapter 3, that I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, that I may become like him in his death and attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, we will not suffer the way, exactly the way Jesus did on the cross because that was a once-for-all sacrifice, a unique sacrifice as Jesus hung on a cross bearing the punishment that we deserve that we may have salvation. But we know as we follow Jesus, we are called to take up our cross and sacrificially obey him. And when we do, the good news is when we are on this road of suffering, that we experience God's nearness his strength and his power, the way Jesus was strengthened by the Father. And I love how Paul says, we share in this abundantly. The comfort overflows. But notice it's only through Christ. We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ. This comfort is not available outside of Christ. This blessing is not available outside of Christ. It's only found by trusting in Christ and being united to him. And if you are united to him, the suffering never outruns the comfort. The comfort overflows. The suffering will never be beyond the ability to endure as we look to Christ, as we are united to him. There's always more than enough comfort in our afflictions. There's always a surplus of God's comfort, a surplus of his nearness, a surplus of his strength as we look to him. He's with us. We're united to him. We're closer than we could ever imagine. And just as Jesus experienced the Father's comfort, so will we. Just as Jesus was raised to life, so will we be. Participation. Finally, perseverance. Paul teaches the church and us that if we endure faithfully, we will experience his comfort. And here is the exhortation to endure. Paul is continuing the same basic point on how his affliction is to serve to minister comfort to the church. And now he gets more personal when he says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now he's talking here of his own apostolic afflictions, I think, but I, I think the application is, is general enough for all of us, again, that all of us who are following after Christ will endure some measure of uh, affliction. But here, specifically in Paul's case, his afflictions actually brought them salvation. Right? He suffered for the sake of the gospel. And in suffering, he brings up this word salvation, that many came to faith in Jesus. So why are you going to hate on the guy who brought you the gospel? Why are you going to hate on the guy who suffered greatly in order to bring you the greatest gift that you could have, which is salvation in Christ? He says, if I'm afflicted, it's for your comfort and for your salvation. And I think there's a principle there for all of us to just keep in mind today, and that is 
Suffering is often tied to salvation. That is, someone has to die in order for someone to live. Evangelism always costs you something. There's always some measure of sacrifice, at least, at the very least, inconvenience in your time. And so we should be grateful to those who have led us to faith through their sacrifice and be reminded that if people are going to come to faith in Jesus, it's not going to happen apart from sacrifice. If we are afflicted, it's for their salvation. If we suffer, it's so that they may know Christ. He goes on in the second part of verse 6 and says, If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Patiently endure. That's what we're called to do in this earth. Patiently endure for Christ's sake. And if we patiently endure, Paul is saying here, we can experience God's power, his comfort. And don't we know that in affliction, if you're suffering on behalf of Christ, you also experience a sense of assurance of salvation. It's when you're suffering on behalf of Christ that you can say, I really am a Christian. (laughs) But when it's in a time of ease and there's no price to pay, well, that that can be somewhat uh, disturbing. Many people profess faith in Christ in easy circumstances, but when the pressures of life come, they, they walk away. But it's when we endure that we experience God's power. We experience endurance. We experience a sense of confidence that we are His. Dane Ortland, who's one of the best writers of our era, I think, writes this, It is difficult, difficult to know the true spiritual state of those who have only known the mountaintop but never the valley. Only ease, but never pain. But there is a strange encouragement in the distressing afflictions of the Christian experience. This is safe ground, for this is the path Christ walked. And in finding ourselves on that path, we know that we are not fair-weather disciples. Uh, We're not fair-weather disciples if we're patiently enduring affliction. And if we're patiently enduring, we're experiencing his comfort. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. (laughs) Now, here Paul, he's about to say some really hard things to the Corinthians, but in spite of all of their disobedience and disrespect, he never loses confidence in them. Notice he says, our hope for you is unshaken. And what does he tie that hope to? That the Corinthians... Are, uh, they belong to God, that they're, they're going to endure. What, how, does he, how would he have any hope in this church? It's such a messed up church. Well, notice he says, it's because we know you're suffering. In fact, when he says here, we know that you share in our sufferings, uh, the ESV puts this as our and other translations do. It's literally the sufferings, which is more likely tied to the sufferings of Christ that Paul's been talking about. In other words, he grounds their hope in the reality that they're suffering as a Christian. And in so doing, they're proving to be Jesus' disciples. So he can have a certain sense of confidence. He knows that they're sharing in Christ's sufferings, and they will also share in his comfort and in his glory that is to come. So what is our call today? Well, our call is not to go looking for suffering. We're not enjoying suffering. Our call is to be faithful. And when we're faithful in this present evil age, we can anticipate affliction. 
But the good news of this passage is, in our affliction, we experience divine comfort and strength to go through it. And praise be to God that he is with us. Praise the God of all comfort. The Father of mercies is your God. Let us be comforters to those who are afflicted. Let us be sympathetic to those who are in affliction. And realize that the comfort we receive from God isn't to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And let us persevere through Christ by the Spirit and experience this comfort, knowing that it is just a foretaste of the comfort that is to come in a new heaven and a new earth where peace and righteousness dwell. To which we all say today, Maranatha. Maranatha. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to call you Father. We love our Father. He's the God of comfort and Father of all mercies. And you have been merciful to us in manifold ways. Your mercies are new every single morning. And your mercy was on full display at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, as we think about what you have done on our behalf today, we offer up our praise and gratitude to you. We're grateful that he who, who knew no sin was made sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. We're grateful for the standing we have in you, for our union with you, for the promises that are ours because of you. And as we turn our attention to the table today, we do so with great gratitude in our hearts. Bless your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.